Well, let us summarize the casinas, both the elements and the color casinas. The natural casinas can be found in nature in general, and they can be condensed into a perfect representation of earth, water, air, and fire. And so can the basic colors of blue, red, yellow, and white also be found in nature in abundance and can be condensed into perfect casino representations. These are the outward maximum representations of the essence of each of these elements or colors. When the mind gets a hold of these things, you should expect them to actually go beyond what is possible by mere visuals. So the mind takes this up and creates a mind-made counter-image of it, and this is internal, and that is riveting. It's not that the elements themselves are riveting, it's you that is riveted. You are the one that is responsible for bringing this into hyper-clarity, and it's not the hyper-clarity that you're after. It's actually just the unification of the mind by interest, focus, and non-distraction. And what will be delightful in this is that the normal harassments of life, the normal emotional distress of life, will have subsided. So that's, we went over this before, that the five hindrances will have diminished and faded away completely. And one way to tell if you're on to this is to ask yourself, how do you feel? If the five hindrances have faded away and you are fully interested, energized, absorbed, then you are on the right track. It's very difficult for anybody exterior to you to tell you whether you have succeeded with this. Don't underestimate it. Please ask for more. It's a super normal condition above your normal interests. You may indeed have experienced supernormal experiences of joy and ease of body with worldly types of subjects, maybe watching sports or listening to music, watching a movie, reading a book, seeing art, being in nature. So you can presume that it's as good or better than the most intense of those experiences. All of those experiences come out of you. Nature doesn't do it to you. Music doesn't do it to you. Art doesn't do it to you. The movies don't do it to you. You are the one that does it to yourself. You are the one who creates these special states of mind. And remember that they're not simply states of mind, but they are whole emotional experiences as well. Your job with this is it more or less like a vitamin pill. We can get our nutrients out of food in general, but by synthesizing and minimalizing and extracting, we can create a small, a tiny little pill that has the essence of what is health-giving in a larger package. So this is kind of a vitamin pill for the mind. 
based on colors and uh, the primary elements of nature. This is restorative. This is the way to mm, above, above normal mental health, emotional health. The practice of this will sustain you in life. Now, I just want to go back and say that to think that you're going to just sit down and do this is magical thinking. You need to have a context for this. You need to put in the primary conditions before this happens. And there are a number of these things. For instance, the Buddha suggested that for the monks that they go to the forest, live in the forest, practice in the forest, stay in the forest, O monks. So it's an ideal environment away from the normal interactions of the social life. So if you happen to be fortunate enough to be able to withdraw from the constant interaction with speech and all kinds of social invitations and social interactions, which are demands both in uh, the life of leisure and in family life and in work life, this is very helpful. That's why we have formal retreats. But if you cannot do this, then you will have to be very careful and mindful in the midst of these things. And that's something that you can do. You're not just subject to the environment. You're not subject to the social situation. You're not subject necessarily to your family and relatives. What the Buddha advises for the monks, because the monks can't stay in the forest all the time, they have to go out on alms round through the, any local village. And that's going to happen every day of their lives. Unless somebody brings the food to them in the forest, they're going to have to walk through the village. And so what does the, the Buddha advise them? He says, monks, practice restraint of the senses. What does this mean? It means not to give excess importance to sights and sounds and smells. So you impose, you, you have judgments about sights and sounds and smells. You see a person and you focus unwisely on the, either the fault in the person or the beauty in the person, in the village, in the food, in the smells. All of these things you give unrestrained attention to some aspect of it. Now, if you give unrestrained attention to the fault in the object, the person, whatever you're watching, you will create a sense of negativity or ill will, and you will lose your capacity to experience the beautiful, that is samadhi. Also, in the sights, if you focus on the desirable and attractive, then you also lose your serenity and focus. So you're, as you go out into the city and into the situation, you remember the, uh, it, we say restrain the senses, but it's really, it's the mind. You're not going to walk around with your eyes closed in the middle of the city. You're not going to walk around not being able to hear things. It might be dangerous if you do. So you're going to have to hear and see, but you're going to have to learn that it's possible to just simply allow the world to be without reacting, judging, criticizing, desiring, evaluating, 
This is something to be practiced, and this is absolute deliverance. It is known to all of the wisdom traditions, including the the ancient Greek philosophers and Roman philosophers, they understood this idea of walking through the world without reacting to the world. So it's not that you don't see anything or hear anything, it's that you understand how the mind can make mischief for itself. And this is not taught. In fact, it's the opposite. So you're raised in a culture of what's called critical thinking, which is encouraging you to have strong opinions about everything, passionate ideas about everything. That's supposed to be celebrated. Well, I suppose it's better than being, you know, absolutely depressed and callous about everything, but it's not good enough. To be passionately involved in politics, in social situations, in the environmental movements uh, are all problematic because you are going to generate both negative and desiring types of emotions. And this will disturb the mind and disturb the heart as well. Does it mean that you don't care, that you drop out? No, it doesn't. It means you can address any of these issues, but you must be careful about what kind of emotions you're generating. If you're generating the five hindrances and thinking, well, I simply have to, that's my duty, I must uh, contribute to this cause, and those people are being unjust, uh, unfair, or this cause needs to be fixed and celebrated, so I must feel strongly about this. It's not necessary. It's not about how you feel, it's what you do. So what you say and what you do. Saying and doing do not require negative emotions behind them. The Buddha spent, after his enlightenment, the rest of his life, in a very active way, organizing one of the largest religious structures on the planet, which has lasted to this day. He had to organize it, structure it, talk with all kinds of people, train monks, and the monks, indeed, then they go on to do the same thing generation after generation after generation. Monks, by the way, some are some of the longest-lived people in society. Sometimes they're 100 years old, still, still being active and teaching and, you know, addressing causes of injustice and addressing urgings toward justice, towards generosity, towards kindness, towards emotional and mental well-being. This can be a lifetime activity on the part of the monks, but you have to understand that you don't need to create, inflict suffering on yourself. It doesn't, you don't have to tense your whole body and focus with ill will through your mind to get things done. There is a way of doing things and at the same time having sublime emotional support for that. So this is necessary if you hope to get to these sublime, elevated states, beautiful states of samadhi through these natural elements and the colors, then you will have to overcome the hindrances and you'll have to learn how to live in the midst of this society to the degree that you can without these negative emotions, problematic emotions. 
Now, one thing that's helpful is association. So the Buddha talks about people who wish to attain these kind of samadhi mental states, these focused absorptions. It is best to try to find people who practice these things. You learn by association, both in the negative and the positive direction. So if you want somebody to go downhill, just leave them associating with with people who are very unskillful in life, in, in thought, speech, and action. If you're surrounded by that, you will be pulled into it and you will go downhill. And if you want to go improve yourself, then find people who are skillful in thought, in speech, and in action. And that association helps a great deal. So it's important to associate with people who are cultivating this deep absorption. And it's a withdrawal from the outer um, world, which people are preoccupied with. So people, ordinary people, all day long, they listen to music, they watch TVs, they chitter-chatter away. This is not the, it's not possible to establish samadhi and uh, engage in those kind of, that lifestyle. You must have withdrawal. So withdrawing from the outer sensory world is the mode that the consciousness must take. Most people don't know what you're talking about. They dread being unstimulated. So the worst thing you can do to somebody in a lot of prisons is put them alone in solitary with no stimulation. You're actually committing yourself to some solitude and withdrawal of the senses to do this. Most people don't understand it and they they do anything to get away from that. So they feel very lonely and uh, bored and and fear solitude itself. So this is a different approach. It's to learn the love of solitude. But remember the deeper definitions of solitude. So solitude is the absence of the five hindrances, the real solitude. You're not alone if you're angry, desiring, agitated, slothful, full of doubt. They're with you. That crowd of negative emotions is with you. It's only when you're without them that you have true solitude. And solitude is to be one. This word monk that we use, as Buddhists, we're not in the original language called a monk. We're called a bhikkhu. But what is this word monk? It comes from the word mono, meaning one who is alone. And a monastic, one in a monastery, mono, 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 one, single. So this is the ideal of a whole part of the population, both in the West and the East. This is not unique to Buddhism. The idea of that you can have very beautiful and rich experiences in solitude and that constant company, constant interaction with the world can be deleterious to your well-being and happiness. That there are things above and beyond that. You can use the company of others to get there, but they have to be of a certain type of temperament in order to help you get there. So in order to move towards this, you will, again, you will feel frustrated if you try to jump in ahead, but you need to go over the Eightfold Path, and this will establish you in a view, for instance, 
Now, part of what I'm saying about this is to do with right view, is to make you reflect, how do I want to live? How do I feel? What can I do about it? Am I chasing superficial happiness that inevitably won't satisfy me? Maybe I should think more deeply about this. What is it that really gives me well-being? I am the one who generates well-being. Can I learn to generate this more constantly? What are the conditions that I require in order to get there? So we understand with all other activities in human life that you can't just do it. You have to cultivate the craft and the skills. And finally, you get the art in the end. So that is the case with athletics and academic practices and art and music. All of these things require training, systematic training, and you can't hope to do these things just by wishing or hoping. It doesn't happen that way. So one should understand that it is the same within the spiritual dimension, and especially in these meditative practices, that they don't happen suddenly by themselves, they happen through gradual processes. And that the causes are well analyzed by the Buddha. This is the, the intelligence of the Buddha. This is the sensitivity that he has worked this out for himself, and then he systematically communicates and teaches this. And that's what makes a Buddha, is that they're primarily a very, very good teacher. These states of mind are not generally known in the world not generally practiced, not even in many cultures, and many people have not even ever considered this or heard of this. So this is something a little esoteric. It's on the margins of things, but very beautiful. And well worth the effort. When you do these things, though, you have to give it a good shot in the right conditions, with the right encouragement, the right situation. And you need to go over the instructions again and again. And by the way, so please refer to other talks I've given on, on the preparation for these. The preparation for these is similar to the other subjects of concentration. So one needs to cultivate very carefully this mindfulness of the mind, being aware, fully aware of what you're thinking and feeling in order to reduce this uh, problematic nature of the hindrances. And there are right efforts to be made, and I have given a whole series of talks on right effort. Please refer to that as well, so that you can arrive at the eighth factor of the Eightfold Path, and it is right concentration, right samadhi, right, right beauty. So I won't pursue it beyond that in terms of what follows right samadhi, because that's not the end of the path. Right samadhi is the springboard which delivers you to right understanding, and that, and that is, of course, enlightenment. So the absorptions are not the end of the path, but they are both, they are, they are temporary experiences of the beautiful, and which encourage you to want to live in the beautiful all the time. And they also prepare the mind for the realization which allows you to attain to the, the ultimate freedom, that is uh, enlightenment. So 
it's not to be dismissed, and there are schools of Buddhism that are very dismissive of these practices, but the Buddha himself advocated this, of course. It's an Eightfold Path, and the last factor is Samadhi. And he says, for one who has right Samadhi, there is no need to wish, may wisdom arise. Wisdom naturally rises and swells out of the practice of right Samadhi. So don't dismiss it or try to bypass this. It is the route to wisdom. I want to just mention for some of the audience that are maybe not aware that there are also four sublime emotional states. So look at the way the Buddha structures these. There are four sublime emotions, the loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And then there are the four elements that can be practiced as uh, samadhi meditations, that is earth, water, air, and fire. And then four primary colors, blue, red, yellow, and white. So look at the structure of these things. These little handfuls that the Buddha gives, it's a marvelous clarification and organizational pattern that he offers to understand what are the beautiful structures of the heart in terms of those emotions, and what are the devices that you can use to enter into beautiful states of mind and emotion. The elements are one of the opportunities, including breath, by the way, breath meditation, which many of you have practiced, and these color meditations. I have given this retreat primarily because I think that the four natural elements, earth, water, air, and fire, and uh, the four primary colors are very rarely taught because it's awkward to give retreats on them. But I thought it would be a shame if you went through life and had not heard of these things. They are represented very strongly, especially in the commentaries, the mainstream commentaries over the centuries after the Buddha. They are represented in the suttas as well. It's likely that a person, unless you're a studying monastic, one who reads the commentaries as well, that you may never come across these things. So we have this medium, YouTube and the internet and so forth, and we are trying to use it to the extent that we can to freely distribute this kind of information. And this is unique in history. Uh, Before this, it's in books. The commentaries, by the way, and the suttas were only recently uh, translated into English. And so access to this information was hard to get. And lots of people would not dream of trying to to wade through these commentaries. These books are six or 800 pages long and very obscure. If you don't understand the whole context of it, then it's pretty well overwhelming. Only a very small number of people will do it. And quite often they will find it too tedious and difficult to actually give you know public talks on this. But Because we have this medium to use now, this is another way to make it much more available to people in a palatable way with some sort of direction given, more explanation given. Commentary descriptions are very brief and somewhat hard to understand. They presume that you have a large knowledge of the 
the overall teachings of the Buddha. And so it's somewhat inaccessible to people. But I'm trying to make it accessible to a larger audience. So I wish you well in your practice. And you will have opportunities over time, perhaps, to watch more of my talks on Samadhi and the Eightfold Path, which will assist you. May you be well, happy, and peaceful, and uh, understand how to be well, happy, and peaceful.